From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk, fourth annual Halloween show. Tonight, you'll be scared senseless by Kate Fricke's writing when we feature three stories from this OSU alumnus performed by OSU students and produced by OSU students. First, you'll hear Good Creatures, Small Things. Then, Her Honeymoon. And finally, The Nursemaids. After that, OSU student Chad Weiss will talk to Scaremeister and OSU alum R.L. Stein. So turn up the sound, turn off the lights, and get ready for the fourth annual Writer's Talk Halloween show. Good creatures, small things. Pennsylvania, October, day 15. There's enough tea left in the can for three more cups. There's the end of a loaf of bread on the shelf as big as two of Ida's small fists, and one potato, six matches, 11 bullets. Ida doesn't sleep in her own bed anymore, but in Mama and Papa's bed, alone. She doesn't change the blankets the way she knows she ought to. There doesn't seem to be much point. Mama is gone, and baby Joe. There's no one else to catch sick. And Papa, well, I don't know what happened to Papa. During the night, she began to whisper a song to herself as she lay unsleeping again. It felt like the right thing to do. People need songs, small things. But then she heard a rustle from outside, over by the fence where the old mule is heaped, and she stopped. She's tried not to make a sound since. She started coughing, though, the thick, gut-deep coughs that Mama started having just before the rashes and the teeth coming loose. When she feels one coming, she presses her face as far into the pillow as she can, and she tries to swallow it back. When she brings her head up from the bedding, she holds her breath and listens closely to the silence for any snapping, any shift of the air outside in the woods. There are creatures out there waiting for a sound to tell them that Ida is still here for the taking. Ida does not know what they are or where they came from, but she knows that they are there, just beyond the trees. If she were brave like Mama, she'd set out down the mountain with eleven bullets and one potato and the end of a loaf of bread, and she wouldn't stop until she found a doctor or a woman with a kind voice who'd put a damp cloth on her forehead and sing to her all the old songs until she'd fall asleep. But she is not so brave. And besides, she knows better. No safe path down the mountain exists. Even though the sun is up at last, Ida stays under the quilts on Mama and Papa's bed. One eye on the rifle that leans by the door. Eleven bullets. That's ten to spare for those creatures, and one to keep for herself. If only she could figure out how to hold it right. Day 14. Ida wakes, and for the first time in many days, she feels more hopeful. The snow, which had begun just a day or so before, fell heavily in the night. It's a good sign, Ida thinks. Snow means that things are hibernating, settling in for long sleeps. After all, she hasn't heard a thing outside since Mama died. Even the low pat-pat of the flakes hitting the window sills is something she only imagines. She has a few bites of bread. It's gone stale, but Ida doesn't mind so much. 
After eating, she stands naked and goose-fleshed before the mirror on the wall, pulling out her eyelids and touching the corners of her mouth. She passes her hands over the buds that would be breasts in a year or two. She's as white and as smooth as the day before, and the day before that. Another good sign. No rashes. Perhaps the sickness won't take her. To be safe, she's been changing the blankets on her little bed in the corner by the stove every night. Though she's burned the sheets from Mama and Papa's bed, she can't burn the quilt. The one Mama made when she was still full-bellied back in Scotland, waiting for baby Joe to come. The quilt waits on their mattress to be cleaned or maybe buried. Ida's not sure yet. She dresses quickly in the cold. Slowly and silently, Ida opens the window shutters above her parents' bed and looks out at the yard. Though a little snow is still coming down, the sun is beginning to glow through the early morning clouds for the first time in many gray days, like a lamp lit behind a curtain. The smooth ground is shining white beneath it. If the sick ones are sleeping too, like all other animals, Ida can wrap herself in her mother's wool coat and walk the many miles down the mountain to Pitchersville, where perhaps her father has found help. Maybe she'll meet him coming back on the way, and he'll hoist her up into the wagon, and together they'll head back across the mountain and down the long road to that port town, full of people with strange smells and strange voices. She hadn't liked them before, when they stepped off the ship into another sea, one of outstretched hands and sneezing, snotty babies. She'd been afraid. But she's not afraid of those people anymore. They were just like her and her family, someplace new. She knows now why those people might have wanted to stay there on the docks, without a home and without work, now that she's seen what is here in the mountains of this strange country. She and Papa will go back across the sea to Ayrshire County, and to hear Nana, who will tell her stories and sing her songs, and they won't talk about this place. Ever. They'll light candles for Mama and for Baby Joe, and that will be the end of all this. But first she's got to make sure. Ida pulls on her mother's coat and folds the sleeves above her wrists. The hem drags on the floor. Ida knows how to load and shoot the rifle, even if it's too long and heavy for her to hold up proper. She puts two bullets in, twelve, eleven, and drags it by the butt to the doorway, the barrel bumping against the wood floor and out the kitchen door. Ida sits on the stoop, and the cold layer of fresh snow melts quickly under her. She rests the butt of the gun between her knees, the barrel pointing up towards the sky, where a few more snowflakes are twirling down like they're trying to catch up to the yard before the sun chases them away. Until Mama died, Ida had been hearing those creatures out there every day, waiting. Snaps and footsteps, the scratch of rough skin against bark. But that was three days ago, and in that time Ida hasn't heard anything but her own breathing. Maybe it means they think there's nothing left here, and they've moved on. Sitting outside the house, Ida feels braver, feels like testing the air. She whispers, even though she knows there's nothing out there that would understand even a simple greeting. Ida feels as though the fresh snow needs to be acknowledged, that the woods might need to hear a kind word. That and it feels so very good to speak. No sound. The flakes hitting the ground around her are like embers, falling out of the stove that go dark and die on the floor. Ida scans the yard, the empty coop, and the ashes of the fire pit on the far end of the fence. Behind her, her little bed grows colder without her in it. She says a little louder. Blood thrums in her ears. There is no answer, not a rustle, not a snap, not a sigh from the woods. Ida hasn't cried, not very much. But now, just thinking about those creatures gone at last and about Papa coming along the clean, snowy path up the wagon behind little Ness, the mule, she begins to cry right there on the stoop. 
The gun drops to her feet and she hugs her knees in and she cries a cry that would be close to a laugh if she didn't miss her mama so much. She'll go in and collect some things, she decides. She'll wrap up what's left of the bread and the potatoes and she'll tie the rifle on her back, just in case there's anything still stirring out there. Yes. The snow has ceased falling and the sun begins to shine, as though holes are being torn in the gray curtain of the clouds. She stands up and begins to turn back into the house, but then, facing the kitchen door, she looks around the corner to the back end of the yard, toward the drift of snow over by the fire pit. Now that the sun's up and casting shadows, she can see footprints there. They are not hers. The bread and potatoes are forgotten as quickly as she resolved to pack them. The creatures have been back, circling the fire pit, perhaps even as she's been sitting there, sniffing around. How could she not have heard them? Of course snow. Ida looks around the yard but sees nothing moving. She crouches back down on the stoop taking the rifle up. Ida struggles to lean the butt of the gun against her shoulder and still be able to reach the trigger. She rests the barrel on top of her right knee and can aim it all right that way. She is breathing hard. She doesn't know whether to stay and wait for something to move or turn her back to go inside as quickly as she can. She grips the heavy gun. Just then, she hears a branch give and snap against the weight of something moving steadily toward the house near the fire pit, where the tree line gives way to low hill, rolling down to the yard. Ida will be brave. She sets her shoulders, her finger folded around the trigger. She hears wet, uneven, rasping breaths, and she sees black, matted fur through the bushes. She shoots. The gun kicks, hitting her sharply to the side of her breastbone and knocking her backwards on the stoop. She screams in surprise and pain. The scream as well as the shot I gave in the trees and in Ida's ears. The creature's still moving, and before Ida can raise herself up, it comes pushing through the low branches and topples over the low bank until it comes to a rest against the fence. Ida scrambles to get into the house, dragging the rifle with her, and once she's over the threshold in the kitchen, she peers out and sees that the form by the fence is little Ness, Papa's mule. Even from the kitchen door, Ida can see that she's been hurt by more than just the bullet, which is torn into her right front leg. Her dark gray flank's been slashed and bitten in a dozen places. Some of the wounds look infected and yellow as though they're a few days older, but she has a large scratch on her neck that looks fresh, perhaps only minutes old. As the mule snorts her last breath, there past the yard, her eyes are red and glazed. Ida sits on the floor, her heart the loudest noise in the house. She's unsure what to do. She cannot take that scream back, nor the shot either. The wounds on Ness's heaving, sick body are sure proof that the creatures in the woods are still out there, searching for weakened food, and now they have heard her. Day 13 Ida sits at the kitchen table, her hands in her lap. She does not eat. She is sure that she is the only thing left alive on the mountain. Day 12. Smoke from the fire in the yard is drifting over the empty coop, the trees, and into the sky. Perhaps someone down the mountain will see it before the sun sets and will send help, but it's unlikely. It's getting cold now. Fires are common. Ida unwraps the apron on her arm and throws it into the flames, where it billows for a moment as it catches a light. The charred forms under the cloth, burnt and reburnt, are unrecognizable, and Ida thanks God for it. She wishes she could stand here next to the flames, despite the smell of sickness, and watch the mass that was her mother turn into ashes and blow away. She wants to say something, a prayer, out loud. 
As young as she is, Ida knows about things like ritual, but she also knows that she can't stay outside for too long, and she turns to the house. She kneels by the door and washes her hands under the pump with a bristle brush until they are red and stinging. She scrubs and scrubs until they're raw, and only then does she let herself wipe her eyes and nose. Her arms ache from dragging Mama, bundled in sheets in that bolt of blue paisley that Papa had bought her out to the yard. Mama was going to make herself a dress out of that fabric one of these days to wear in the coming winter months. Papa was going to take them all down into Pitchersville and spend the worst of the winter. The splash dam would be frozen and no one would need to be on the mountain to keep it up. Not until the spring. Papa was going to get a town job, that's what he said. And Mama had been so happy. They'd go to church every Sunday. Ida figures that Paisley is as close to a prayer as Mama can have. Everything outside the tiny house is silent except for the fire. The birds are missing. Ida thinks that there ought to still be animals around, rabbits, a fox or two, their coats turning silver and white to match their teeth in the morning frosts. At least that's how it had been in Ayrshire, when the winter crept into the highlands. But Ida hasn't seen a breathing, moving thing but herself since yesterday. The fire is so loud it terrifies Ida. It is the only sound that she can hear, and she's sure that if there are creatures nearby, they can hear it too. Papa's gun is on the ground next to her, but she's not sure if she would be able to grab it and brace it against herself in enough time to shoot anything. The paisley is all gone, and everything that had been underneath it is char and ash and bone. Smoke trickles up into the sky. Behind the column of smoke, Ida thinks that she sees something move in the trees. She picks up the gun and runs to the kitchen door, bolting it behind her. The box of bullets sits where she left it earlier on the shelf. Ida counts them again, taking them out and lining them up on the big table where they roll and settle into the grooves in the wood grain. There are twelve left. She puts them back one by one. She counts them again. Later she will try to sleep, but she does not know if she will succeed. Day 11. Ida sits on the floor in the corner made by the stove meeting the wall. There is nothing burning in it and the cast iron is cold against her back. Ida has been watching the sheets on the bed move every so often when Mama tries to bring air into her lungs. Ida is waiting for stillness. Day 10. Mama is thirsty and she can't stop scratching the rashes on her arms and chest. Ida brings food and water to her bed and sits next to her as she writhes, biting the pillow and tangling the quilts. Her mother's skin shines with sweat, a sheen over the places where her nails have made red marks. Ida is frightened, but she doesn't move. Her mother has always been a careful, strong woman, a still woman, and Ida tries to be still for her. For now, Mama is like a trapped cat. Mama has a fever, a bad fever, and she doesn't remember that she has to stay quiet. When Ida sees that she's about to yell, she holds a bunched-up sheet over her face in hopes that it doesn't smother her. Under the folds of fabric, she can feel her mother's hot breath, smelling like old eggs. Mama coughs under Ida's hands, and when Ida pulls the sheet away, there's blood. Blood in a single tooth. Your papa. Mama says, her voice like a creak in a door. He can't. He can't. But Ida does not know what it is her papa can't do, for Mama coughs again, falls quiet. Ida gathers the tooth in a corner of the sheet and tosses it into the stove. Day 9 In the morning, 
Mama has a rash on her shoulder and her neck. Ida makes tea, and Mama tells her not to hand it to her, but to leave it on the table, and to go sit across the room. Don't come near me, she says, and Ida does as she's told, without a word. She knows that her mother is not upset with her, but still, she feels as though she is being punished for not being able to do anything at all. Day 8. The missing rooster shows up finally, dropped a few paces from the fence, its legs and backside torn off by the creatures. Ida and her mother can smell it from the house, like sulfur, fish, and manure. We'll have to get rid of it, Mama whispers. Her face is ashen and cut into stripes by the light through the wooden window shutters. It's outside the fence, Mama, so close to the trees. But Mama says to shush, which means Ida's got to be brave, and grabs a kerchief to tie around her mouth and nose. Give me that apron, she says. Ida does as she's told and takes the apron off its peg and gives it to Mama, who uses it to bundle up one hand. They destroyed the gloves already in yesterday's fire. Mama didn't feel good enough about washing them. Have to make do with something else and then always get rid of it after. With her free hand, Mama grabs a match, puts it in her pocket, and takes up Papa's rifle from where he left it leaning on the wall. Her eyes are cold, and her voice flat, as if by wavering it will shatter. You stay here. Try not to breathe till I've got it burned. Ida nods, knowing better than to argue. No matter how much she wants Mama to stay in the house with her, she doesn't want to think about what will happen if they let the bird stay out there. They can't leave it. It sent a signal so putrid that those things will come in packs. She stands by the door, covering her mouth with her hand and watches as Mama walks slowly toward the fence, pausing between each step to listen. The closer she gets to the carcass, the worse the smell must be, for Ida sees her close her eyes and cough through the kerchief. Mama reaches out with her bundled hand and picks up the remains of the bird, holding it far away from her body. Mama crosses the yard and throws the dead rooster into the pile of char and soot already waiting there. Before she lights the match, though, she coughs again and, to Ida's horror, lifts the kerchief from her mouth, gagging. Ida bites her hand to keep from crying out. Mama is gasping, doing just what they had both taught themselves these last days not to do. Mama's breathing in. Ida runs from the doorway and grabs the match from her mother's hand, strikes it against the fence and throws it onto the mound. As the rooster catches fire, the smell begins to fade away and is replaced by the scent of burning feathers, flesh, and wood. Still, Ida keeps one hand over her mouth and tries with the other to help Mama cover her own. The fire pops and crackles and echoes in the yard. Day 7. Ida fills a bucket from the pump outside the kitchen door, holding it at an angle so the water runs in the side quietly and doesn't slosh. She takes care not to let the door creak as she heaves the bucket inside. Mama is waiting by the mirror, undressing. Her shoulders are broad, though she's not a large woman. They dip comfortably where they meet her neck, and Ida remembers what it is like to be held, to put her own head just there in that hollow. Mama stands before the glass on the wall and pulls at the skin of her neck, her face. She lifts one breast, then another. She nods to herself as though everything is as it should be. She pulls her heavy brown hair around the side of her neck. Ida, my back. She whispers. Ida eases the bucket onto the floor by her mother and climbs into the stool so that her head is level with Mama's shoulders. She holds her hands, fingers outstretched just above Mama's skin, almost touching her, and she searches Mama's back for any signs of the same yellow rash that baby Joe had. 
using her fingers as a guide. Nothing. She steps down, backwards from the stool, and squats to get a good look at the backs of Mama's legs. Her thighs are like pillows, where the stuffing underneath is bunched and worn. Mama's got spider veins in the curves behind her knees, and Ida peers at those longer than anything else. It's hard to tell if anything's different there. Nothing. Mama nods and turns around. Your turn, baby girl. Ida hangs her own dress on the peg by the fireplace and stands naked on the stool, while Mama looks at her back and her legs. Ida stretches her arms out in front of her and turns them over and over. They are skinny and pink and freckled, and they look just like a pair of arms should. They are thin. They are not very useful. Ida and Mama take turns dipping the washcloth in the bucket of cold water and washing the ash off of each other's skin. They didn't find much of Little Joe over by the fence, but they made a fire anyway. Day six. Mama doesn't leave her bed all day. Ida heats them a potato, each to eat, aware of every sound she makes. The sharp moan of the stove door, the slide of the knife against the food and the wood of the table. Afterwards, she sits by the stove, poking at the coal in the grate. They will have to try from now on to be much quieter. Day five. It is evening. Mama wants to bury the baby in the ground instead of burning him. Ida helps dig the hole over in the far end of the yard away from the garden. They've wrapped baby Joe in the small cotton cloths from his cradle and as Mama kneels and puts him in the ground, Ida can see one little hand peeking through the folds. Ida has never seen a dead thing before today. Chickens and geese and fish don't count, not now. Before, when he was dead in his cradle, Ida looked close at baby Joe, his yellow sores and his red-tinted eyes. She looks at the way his wispy curls lay matted on his forehead, and the rash that started on his chest but had bloomed over half of his miniature face, hiding his left eye in a yellow crust. She knew she'd never seen anything this terrible before in her life, and if she was real lucky, she never would again. When they are done, Mama makes some tea and warms them each a slice of bread. Ida sits on her bed, afraid to speak. Afraid that one noise would be like a pin on the thin orb that is her mother's composure. Small things, Ida. Mama says as she holds the toasting fork over the stove and waits for the kettle to warm. That's all we can do till your father comes. Ida understands this, though she wishes she didn't have to. The sound of a branch snapping echoes outside the house. Mama makes a little crying sound as she whips her head towards the window, her eyes wild. Ida doesn't want to see what's out there. She doesn't want to know but finds herself following her mother to the window where they peer through the shutter slats. It is sitting at the tree line, its unseeing eyes rolling toward the house and the yard. Suddenly, Mama's hand is around Ida's mouth. Don't! Don't! Mama hisses. Ida wants to scream. Mama presses Ida's head against her chest. Maybe it doesn't know we're in here. The smell of Ida's baby brother is still in the air, and the thing knows it. Its nostrils make the sound of a wet foot on a wooden floor as it sniffs, searching. It crouches like a man, stands like a man, but it is not a man. Ida doesn't know what it is. She can only assume that this land of crowded ports and dark pine-filled woods is full of such monsters. For a moment, an awful moment, Ida resents her father for bringing them here, away from the secure village and the broad moorns of Ayrshire, where Ida never saw anything more frightening than a wildcat. It comes close to the yard, creeping forward on two feet. 
It's alone, which is strange. Even from the window, Ida can smell it. The same stench multiplied, congealed into its very skin. Don't breathe it in, Ida. Do not breathe it in. Mama whispers it so quietly, Ida would swear she hadn't said anything at all, and they are simply sharing the same thought. It is no longer sniffing around. It has found its prize. It stays low along the fence, grasps the fresh earth with its claws, and begins to dig. Ida watches through the slats, frozen, until she sees the creature's arms coming up out of the hole. She can't look anymore. She sits down against the wall. Above her, Mama, still staring through the window, places her hands over her eyes and opens her mouth as though she is keening, but she lets out no sound. It seems to Ida as though so much time passes before Mama lowers herself to the floor and stays there, making no sound. Her head in Ida's lap. They stay there in silence for much, much longer. Day four. The morning after Papa leaves, Ida can see that her mother feels much better. She seems to have sealed herself for a time, and Ida is glad for it. Now that he's gone, they have to be strong, and the sight of Mama sad in bed scares Ida more than anything she's seen, even the creatures that killed the chickens. Mama puts on an old dress, stained from many years of work. Ida knows, planting, building, traveling along with Papa, and tells Ida to get ready. They're going to clear the yard. Mama ties a cloth around Ida's mouth and nose after putting on her own, and Ida complains that she can't breathe. Good. Try not to. They go out into the yard and over to the chicken coop, where everything is quiet. The hens don't look like hens anymore, as if dying had twisted them into forms of sticks and barks with feathers pasted on. A breeze lifts the edge of a wing from one body and plays with it. And on other forms, feathers twitch for just a moment. The breeze hits Ida and Mama and brings with it that stink that the illness causes. Ida feels her throat close up and she wants to be sick. Mama grunts quietly in disgust. Mama points to a corner of the fenced-in yard away from the house. We'll do it there. She opens up the sack she's brought from the kitchen, and Ida begins picking up the stiff, feathery bodies of the hens and dropping them in, her hands covered by the folds of her apron. Mama leans her head away as she holds the sack open and shuts her eyes as if she can't bear to see its contents building up. The hen's eyes are all red around the edges and their beaks are covered in a yellow crust. The rooster's not here, Ida says. I'll just pray it doesn't show up. Ida and Mama take the loaded sack to the far corner and Mama puts some sticks and dry grass over it. Mama is brusque, determined. Ida knows this means that she is being brave. Ida tries to be brave, too, as she holds her breath against the smell of the bodies gathered in the sack. Go inside now, Ida, and give the baby some water. Mama says before she strikes a match and, holding her hand to the cloth covering her face, tosses it onto the pile. Wash your hands first. Inside, Joe is crying. Ida rushes over to his cradle to quiet him. Be brave, Joe. Don't cry. But then she sees that he's wet himself. And his diaper smells like the chickens did, only fainter. The rash has spread quickly to his neck, and with his tiny little nails, he's been scratching at it. Day 3 The only way down to Pitchersville is through the woods, and Papa wants to take the wagon to get a doctor. 
Ida's mama cries and cries and wraps her fingers around Papa's arms, clenching them. Please, please, please don't do this. Don't do this. She's afraid that Papa won't come back. Ida is quiet and sits on her stool with baby Joe, whose breathing is slow and wet. Ida has never seen her mother like this. Mama always smiles at Papa like she's happy to see him, even if he's only been a short walk away down at the splash dam all day, herding logs down the river like floating cattle. Mama always has a smile for him. But today she hits him on the arms and the chest over and over, and she won't stop crying. Like everything she's ever been afraid of is happening all at once, and she's angry at him for letting it. Ida's afraid too, but only because Mama is. There's nothing else to be done. Do you want him to die? You could take us with you. You're better off here, in the house, than all of us out there in the trees. Ida wants to ask her father who will keep us safe while you're gone. But Mama asks it for her. Oh, it will keep us safe while you're gone. Stay in. Keep quiet. I'll leave you one of the rifles. Ida hears her mother whisper, Useless count. As Papa begins to pack, the words are like those stones in the river near Papa's splash dam, the ones that can cut Ida's feet before she even knows they're there. If Papa hears these words too, he doesn't let on. As he stuffs some food and one box of bullets into a sack, Ida cannot help but ask him about the creatures. What are they, Papa? Are they the Iroquois? Don't be daft. He doesn't look at her, goes to grab his coat. I told you. They Iroquois are men, nothing to be afraid of. Those things are not men. Ida can see that he is angry. Maybe angry at her for being daft, maybe angry at the baby's sickness, maybe angry because he doesn't know what those things are, if they are not men. Ida is not angry, only frightened. He drives the wagon away from the house without even a wave, and then he is gone. The trees swallow him up. Mama takes to her bed and is quiet for a while. Ida stays at the window and looks out at the yard. This is what she imagines a battlefield looks like. Covering the grass all the way past the fence to the tree line are the feathered bodies, some still whole, but just as dead. The yellow mess is everywhere and it stinks. Ida wants to clean it up in case the things come back for what's left, but Mama, her voice muffled by the sheets on the bed, says that she needs some time. Ida goes to baby Joe who sits on his cradle crying and sucking on his hand. She picks him up and braces her elbow against her ribs to hold him. He's getting big, and Ida always seems to be staying small. Day 2 In the morning, Ida and her papa notice that the chicken's eyes are all turning red around the edges, like they've been bleeding, and they're making sounds like their little gizzards are saturated, too hot and wet to get a good breath. By the end of the day, their beaks are sealed shut with a yellow crust, and they're giving off a smell that seeps through the yard. There's something spreading bad air out there, Papa says in the kitchen as Mama stands at the window watching the trees. Don't know what it is. They eat dinner, a thick potato soup in silence. Our father Papa reads out of his prayer book before they all go to be bed, but nobody can sleep because the baby keeps crying. Finally, Mama gets up and walks over to the cradle and lifts him with one arm while she pushes one shoulder of her nightshirt aside with the other. Ida gets out of bed and goes to the stove to sit next to her mother. The house is dark except for the blue of the moon through the window and the low light of glowing coals. Soon the baby stops crying and begins suckling instead, and Ida leans her head against her mother's knee. It is in this moment that they all hear it, a crunching of many dead leaves at once and the licking of many lips. Papa sits up in bed and reaches for his gun. 
God, what is that? Mama gasps. Ida stands and goes to where Papa is leaning toward the window, looking out at the chicken coop. As she gets closer, the smell of the sick chickens grows and she coughs, trying to get the stench out of her nostrils, her throat. She holds her small hand over her mouth and nose and looks out over the mossy sill. A great many things are coming out from behind the trees. They have slim, upright bodies and are as tall as Papa. They are dark, as if they have black fur, but they do not look soft at all. Their skin is like charred wood and covered with glistening yellow sores. At first, they walk on two feet towards the fence, but Ida sees a few of them trip as they come, catch themselves on their front hands, and they continue straight, walking on all fours, like animals. Their noses are lifted up and they are sniffing, sniffing the air. Their heads wagging from side to side as they focus on the scent. Their faces are small and round, and they have short, sharp teeth. Their eyes are a soupy gray, with no center. Lord, they're all blind, Papa says. And three of them closest to the house look toward the window, ears perked. Ida shrieks. Papa smacks the back of her head. The creatures find what they've been looking for at the chicken coop, and they converge upon it. Several of them climb the side or jump onto the roof. The few that look toward the house forget Papa and Ida's voices in their rush to the chicken's waiting bodies. A few of them reach into the coop and begin pulling the birds out, now limp, already dead, and easy to find, easy to collect. Papa lifts his rifle as a group of them closest to the house begin to change their path and creep toward the open window. He shoots and hits one in the center of the head between its cloudy eyes. All of them in unison begin to scream. A shrill, angry cry, and then they all back away, leaving most of the chickens untouched. Two of them fall upon the body of the one that Papa's just killed and drag it with them, gnawing at its arms. As they go, they seem to cough, to hack up a yellow phlegm that sticks to the ground and the stones, as though they're marking their territory. The scream echoes as they disappear into the dark. Papa's face is white, and he looks old, very old in the moonlight. Day one. Ida brings Papa's lunch, a pack of dried apple stack cakes wrapped in a cloth to the splash dam where he is checking the cribs, making sure everything will survive the winter in good shape. The smell of the apple cakes fills her nostrils. Do we have to go? She asks as the stream burbles next to them. Ida likes the mountain, its closeness and its dark, compared to the moors of Ayrshire. Do we have to go to town? Aye, in two weeks time. Papa says she'll like town just as much. People, he says. You'll see more kinds of people than you ever thought existed. There's a camp of Iroquois still near Pitchersville. What are those? Just people. Good men for the most part. Been there longer than any Scot. Dark skin, hair, everything. Ida's a little frightened. But she just nods, not letting her papa see. There's a lot of things been here in this place longer than you or me. Or even the town itself, he says. But there's nothing but good creatures out there, Ida. Ida nods. You help your mother? Her cue to head home, to stay out of Papa's way. As Ida walks up the path from the stream and the splash dam to her own little house, she tries to imagine what kinds of strange people she might see. If Papa says there's nothing to be afraid of, then she'll believe him. At the house, Baby Joe is waddling around the chicken coop as Mama watches from the door. Soon he'll be too big for his cradle. He chases a chick, and trying to grab it, falls down and starts crying. Ida rushes over to him, sits on the ground, and hoists him into her own small lap. She sings him a song Mama taught her all the way home in Ayrshire. 
from before Papa brought them to these mountains. Joe stops crying. Ida doesn't know what the words mean. Mama says that she did once, when she was a girl, but that no one speaks the old languages anymore, and a person forgets everything after time, except how pretty the words sounded. Joe reaches to the ground and picks up a handful of feed in his stubby fingers, which he shows to Ida proudly. There is a film on the feed, a sort of crust. Ida doesn't think much of it. <laughs> Good job, Joe. Now drop them. He doesn't drop the feed, but starts to shove it in his mouth, grinning. You silly baby. Ida hoists him onto her shoulder and walks down the fence into the house, where Mama tells her to put the baby down and help her cut wood to add to the wagon. It's getting colder, and the people down in Pitchersville will need their firewood stacked for the winter soon enough. Papa does well enough with the logging, but a little extra, Mama says, for those who'd rather buy good mountain firewood than cut it themselves, will help them get through the winter in town in comfort coffee, Mama says with longing. Real coffee. No damn winter's worth it otherwise. But Ida likes the winter. She looks forward to the hush of the snow on the mountain. At night, she can hear animals gathering, preparing for months of sleep. Ida doesn't want to go to town with its strange people. She likes it well enough here. Here, the woods are full of the sounds of good creatures. Small things. That was Good Creatures, Small Things, by OSU alumnus Kate Fricke, performed by Trenton Rowland as narrator, Michael Lee as the father, Beth Josephson-Simon as the mother, and Kate Fricke herself as Ida. And now, another Kate Fricke story. Her Honeymoon, by Kate Fricke. After she married him, but before I covered all the mirrors in the house with thick sheets and cloths, I saw her image constantly. Every glass I glanced into, she stood behind me or next to me, her face melting into my face, me becoming her. I didn't want to become her. I didn't want to be married to him, now a wife, soon, probably be a mother, and to carry forever the guilt that she'd broken me. No, I, I couldn't envy her. I could only mourn the loss of her. We'd been girls in the same garden as children. We had tasted every part of each other, as orphans, as women in the seaside school. Days of this, her face in the mirror. What did she want me to know? Yes, they were married now away on a honeymoon, on a more pleasant shore. Her physical body was hundreds of miles away, perhaps on a deck chair, perhaps in a bed, his body warming hers. But her face was here with me. Leave me alone, I would scream. Let me forget you. I covered every mirror, and for three days I had peace. For three days... I felt I might one day be free of her. But at the end of the third day, 
I woke in my bed in the black night. What was that on the wall? A mark, spreading like spilled ink. The cloth-covered armoire stood in the corner like a caged, hulking beast, breathing low, its menace chained away. But what was that on the wall? All was midnight silence as the mark spread, blossomed, and in an instant became the perfect likeness of her face. I threw my pillow at it. I screamed. You have no heart, I shouted at her as her face multiplied, the marks spreading like tributaries and rivers against the blank beige map of my bedroom walls, those walls that had seen us together so many times, unmoved by our twistings and sighs. You belong to him now, I said. How can you have no heart for him or for me? The faces moved a prism of blinking eyes and rustling hair surrounding me on every wall. You want me to kill him, I said. Did they nod? I have to believe now that they nodded. Yes. That was the Kate Fricky story, Her Honeymoon, performed by OSU staff member Beth Josephson Simon. And our final Kate Fricky story, The Nursemaids. Cuckoo, little child, I say. I know no lullabies. Cuckoo. Cuckoo, like a clock ticking each hour. But the clock ticks only for me. The child is always a child, always new. But the smell of powder and the opening, closing lids like the wings of grasshoppers as translucent and is innocent. The child has been a child, an infant with nails as big as the ball heads of pins for 200 years. And for 200 years, my family's women have been its nursemaids, our breasts sore and drained of milk and of blood. The rules are hard and fast. Take care not to let it suck for more than two minutes, time by your own breath speaking one one thousand, two one thousand, until you reach the mark. Pull it away with your finger in the crook of its jaw, distracting it, or its teeth, tiny teeth, will tear at you, and that does no one any good. Its cries are like that of a wild cat, and you see its teeth, like bit of broken bone, push violently through skin, the fault of an accident, not nature taking its course. If it scratches itself, as babies do, Then for heaven's sake, don't let the blood touch you. Let it nowhere near your lips or your eyes. We've all had the temptation, though, to let it in, to taste immortality. But it's been 200 years without one of us crossing that rule, and for that we must assume we were chosen. We are a stalwart line. The first of us, the grandmother whose face no one remembers, began... When the child was turned in front of her very eyes, she, quick as a switch, killed the mother. She who'd turned it, with a mouth full of garlic and the broken leg of a stool. Then she took residence in her master's house. All others run away, or dead, and stayed with the babe. We have been here, hearing no songs nor singing them. Outside this house, the town has dwindled and we hear talk of a city far away, where the others that we could have become go off to work, 
and keep small homes and tenements. But we remain here with the babe. We keep it alive like good nursemaids, and sometimes, like other nursemaids, we marry. We bear daughters. Our husbands are invariable. They marry us to save us. They age with us in frustration. They leave us for that new city when we reveal that our daughters will not be spared. They are missed. That was Kate Fricke's story, The Nursemaids, performed by OSU student Michael Lee. You already knew that R.L. Stein is an Ohio State University alumnus. Now, OSU student Chad Weiss finds out about R.L. Stein's days at OSU, including when he was known as Jovial Bob Stein. Welcome to Writer's Talk. Well, thank you, Chad. It's great to be here. Not too scary. Tell me about a typical day in the life of Bob Stein, the undergraduate. Well, you have to understand, I had the worst college experience any person could have. Not anything because of Ohio State, but because I had to live at home. Go to the student union where the magazine office was, Mm -hmm. and I would hang out at the office, and we would put out this magazine. Every once in a while, I would go to a class, but not that often, and that's basically what I did here. Any mentors or significant figures um within the university or? No. No? Okay. Uh, no. Do you feel that? I didn't. I, you know, all my mentors, all the people who influenced me were people who wrote scary books or authors, other authors, or um, people like Rod Serling, The Twilight Zone, um, those people. Uh, some of my big inspirations came from comic books. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, there were these incredible horror comics called Tales from the Crypt and the Vault of Horror. And I just loved them. I just, they were gruesome, bloody comics. They were awful. I just thought they were terrific. And they were scary and funny at the same time. They always had funny twist endings. And they, they were very influential on me. As far as uh, mentors, I don't think I ever had a real, uh, re- uh, uh, you know, in, in-person live mentor. Okay, so, so your time at Ohio State was pretty much just spent in the student union. My time was pretty much <laughs> spent going to football games or being in the student union. Sure. And occasionally I, w- I would go to class and, uh, you know, I did have, I was an English major, worthless, worthless major. And I turned out okay, but, you know, <laughs> it was worthless. And, but I did have some very entertaining um, classes and some very interesting English classes back then. There was a, a guy named, um, a teacher named Jonathan Bombach, who I took a course from, I'm just remembering this, in uh, playwriting, modern, it was modern theater. And he went on to NYU, and my future wife, unbeknownst to me, was taking a course from him at NYU. Now, when you were writing for the Sundial, you were writing under the pseudonym Jovial Bob, correct? Yeah, well, the magazine hadn't been doing, the magazine had been around for like a hundred years. It had been around forever. Uh, James Thurber worked on the magazine in 1917. And so it had a nice old tradition, but it wasn't really, it sort of fallen into hard times. And I really, I, this was like a, a goal of mine to have a magazine and be able to write, you know, an actual magazine that would go out to people was exciting to me. 
So I thought, well, maybe I need a personality. Maybe that'll help the magazine mm -hmm. if I give myself like a personality. And I'm just thinking, and I don't know where it came from. I have no idea. And I called myself Jovial Bob Stein. And I'm, but now I'm uh, thinking about it, probably 90% of the kids had no idea what the word jovial meant, <laughs> right? Sure. Probably had no idea. <laughs> Maybe I could have had a better choice. But I was Jovial Bob. And then later on, um, I did a, a national humor magazine for kids. I was at, at Scholastic in New York. And I did a magazine in the 70s and 80s, a humor magazine, uh, called Bananas. Mm -hmm. And it was like Mad Magazine, only it was all in color. Yeah. And uh, that was a great time. And I was Jovial Bob Stein again. But then, you know, when it came time to be scary, somehow Jovial Bob <laughs> seemed not too appropriate. Doesn't quite capture. <laughs> no, no, it didn't. So that's when I started using my initials. Okay, so when you're when you're writing under these different pen names, are you are you navigating different um, personas, or is it? Simply no, not really. No. But you know, and I, I I wrote humor, and I wrote you know joke books for kids. I wrote about a hundred funny books for kids yeah. before I started writing scary. And it wasn't that big a transition. I always think there's a very close connection between humor and horror. There, when, when you go into a scary movie, you hear people screaming and laughing at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. Or when you go into an amusement park and you go up to a roller coaster, the same thing. You hear screams and you hear laughs. And I just think there's a very close connection. And I, in writing the horror books, I sort of treat every chapter, the chapter ends, as a punchline. It's sort of like writing a joke. Mm -hmm. You've got all this stuff happening, and then there has to be like a punchline at the end. Okay. Now, I've read that, that when you write, you have everything planned out. Mm -hmm. um, is that how you've always written, or is that something that you've come into over the years? Well, <laughs> when I started writing um, Fear Street books, and then Goosebumps and that, um, they had to be very carefully plotted. They, ha they had to make sense, <laughs> right? It's, that's, that's the hard part. They sure. have to make sense. And so I started, uh, my editors actually asked me, they said, before you write the book, we want to see an outline. Well, you can't, you really can't have writer's block if you've done all the thinking already. I mean, I, all the hard part is in the outline. I've done all the thinking and all the plotting, and I know everything that's going to happen in the book. So I can just relax and enjoy the writing. It's all, the hard part is done. Before you got into um, the Goosebumps series, uh, you did uh, Eureka's Castle. You've done work in television. <laughs> Do you yeah. also carry the same outlining um, into your work with, with creating television shows? Well, that was my whole TV career, Eureka's Castle. That was a lot of fun. I did that for four years. I was the head writer, and I, we wrote all of the uh, puppet episodes. It was sort of like Sesame Street, except we didn't teach them anything. <laughs> they didn't learn anything. <laughs> it was just, <laughs> yeah, it was just fun. And it was a very different writing process. Um, it, you didn't plan it out quite as much. And also, it, you know, when I write a book, I sit in my room, I'm in my apartment, and I type, I'm writing this book. But when you write for television, it's a major collaborative effort. And I would write a script, and then the, we'd bring it in, and everyone would sit around a table, all the puppeteers, the producers, the network people, the director. It would be a huge crowd. 
and go over my script line by line. And everyone had different ideas about what it would be about. And then I would go home and try to incorporate their ideas in the script. It was, it was totally different from writing a book. Yeah. Then I would come back and we'd sit around the table and they'd tear apart everything I did. And then I would go back and write a third version of the script. And then we'd come back and then we would shoot the script and we'd go up on the set and the puppeteers would say whatever they wanted. <laughs> that was that. <laughs> and then luckily that's how, that's how it worked. They would just go up and ad lib and say anything. And luckily they were really funny. Yeah. So I could take credit for it. <laughs> Even though, you know, about half of it was my words. <laughs> they didn't use too much of what we did, but it worked out okay. Yeah. Okay, so beginning in 1995, you started uh, four seasons of, of the television series Goosebumps. Mm -hmm. um, how does working on the television show differ from working on the books? Is it the same? Well, I didn't worry. You know, I was, at that time, I was writing a Goosebumps book every month. Actually, I was doing two book series, for me to see what would happen when another writer took my story and then went off with it. Sure. It was, it, it, that, was, that was fun, actually. Yeah. But I, I liked it a lot when kids would come up to me and say, you know, the book was a lot better <laughs> than the TV show. Yeah. <laughs> I always enjoyed that. Um, your Goosebumps series has had a major impact on the, on the children's market. To what do you accredit that success? You know, just kids. And, and luck, good, very good luck, <laughs> mostly luck. But um, Goosebumps came out in 92. This is actually the 20th anniversary of Goosebumps. Can oh you imagine? Gosh. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and um, we had no advertising, no hype of any kind. I didn't do any appearances. I didn't do any book signings. I was home writing these books. You know, we had, there was no way, the only way word got out was from kids. It was like the secret kids network of kids telling kids about it. Mm -hmm. It was totally word of mouth. And I think whenever there's some kind of publishing phenomenon or phenomenon, that's the only way it can happen. Mm -hmm. It has to be kids telling kids. Yeah. Somehow, I, you know, it's very mysterious to me. I mean, somehow it happened all over the world. Wow. I don't know how that happened. But I mean, that's really lucky. But. Um, I think if you have something you want to sell to kids and you do a million TV ads and you advertise it and you do all these, it, you can't force kids to buy it. Right. You know, Harry Potter, I think, started exactly the same way. It's very small and the audience grew and grew. And I, I think that was all word of mouth, too. Yeah, certainly that social dynamic is a uh, mm -hmm. big player in that. Um, yeah. Being outside of that, um, peer group, how, what was your first indicator that you were onto something big? Well, Goosebumps just sat there. We, we were originally signed for four books. Mm -hmm. That was going to be it, four books. And they, the books went out and they sat there on the bookstores for months, for like six months. Nothing. And we just considered it was a failure. Um, in the market today, they would have just been taken off. They don't have any patience for anything today. And they would have just seen, well, these aren't selling, and they would have been gone. And then after six months, they just took off like crazy. No one had any idea. No one, you know, it's not the kind of thing you plan. We just, we just, we couldn't believe it. I have one rule, and that is the kids have to know it's not real. Mm -hmm. 
they have to know it's a fantasy and it couldn't really happen. And if they know that, I can go pretty far. As long as they know, oh, okay, this is just a fantasy. I'm sitting in my room. I'm reading. I, you know, I like to call my books safe scares. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, they know it's not going to go too far. Right. And they know it isn't real. So they're okay with it. Sure. And that's all I care about. Um, last summer, I wrote a horror novel for adults, which is going to be out in October. And that's the complete opposite process. Right. Totally opposite. When you write for adults, it all has to be really real. Mm -hmm. They're not going to buy it at all if it, if it doesn't sound real. And it, it was very hard for me to like turn everything around and make sure I had to do research. I've never done research. <laughs> never done research. I had to do research and I had to it was just make sure that all the details were right. Yeah. Something I usually just, you know, just make it all up. <laughs> And I found it a lot harder. It's a lot harder to write for adults. Has there, has there ever been a time when you were writing for children that you felt that you just had to scrap something and, and start over because it just wasn't? Not very often. Mm -hmm. Mainly because first I have to get the idea approved by my editors and then I have to get the outline approved. I've had to scrap a lot of outlines. Sure. Uh, one, my wife is my editor, for real. I'm married to my editor. Can you imagine? <laughs> And at one time, she gave me back a, um, an outline, and on the top, it just had two words on the top. It said, psychotic ramblings. <laughs> <laughs> That's tough, right? Yeah. That is really tough. Yeah. So, like, you know, I've had a lot of outlines that were <laughs> rejected. You've really got to separate work from your yeah. life at that point. Well, you have to yeah. try. That's the only thing we fight about, mm -hmm. is plots. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, is it, is it the... The, the liberties that you get to, to take with um, writing from a, a fantasy standpoint that draws you towards the, the child demographic, or what is it that makes you... Um They're just a great audience. Yeah. You know, uh, I've written for adults before, but they don't have time to write to authors. Right. They're adults. They're right. busy. They don't have time. I have such amazing contact mm -hmm. with my readers. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, most of my readers are like 7 to 12. It's a great audience. I, I get them the last time in their lives they'll ever be enthusiastic, yeah. right? Because, <laughs> you know, 12, 13, they discover sex. Right. Is, is, is mm -hmm. there anything that you've read from a child, um, be it a letter or if they send you, I'm sure, or you've gotten little manuscripts and whatnot, mm -hmm. is there anything that sticks out in your mind? Um, Not really, no. No. <laughs> no. But I will tell you that the stories that kids send to me mm -hmm. are much scarier than the stuff I do. <laughs> It's really, you know, gruesome, horrible stuff they send. It's amazing. Yes. <laughs> Things I would never do, you know, they, these kids send. But, um, uh, you know, I do get to see stuff. And then every once in a while, there's a really talented kid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I can write back to this kid and say, you've really got it, you know, keep going. You, you know, you're really good. More information about any of our guests can be found at www.writerstalk.org. Until next time, this is Doug Dangler. Keep writing.